This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great research to practice show for you today. We've got Dr. Rachel Adams on. We're going to talk about moisture measurement and mold. Uh, please check out the Facebook page and our YouTube page. Leave a comment and subscribe on our iaqradio.com homepage. Uh, before we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report no one correctly identified the Clean Air Act of 1963 as creating a research and regulatory program in the U.S. Public Health Service. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, March 29, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the scientist who in 1953 established bacterial growth correlated to water activity, not water content. Back to you, Joe. Mm, Quite appropriate for today's show. All right. Today's guest is Dr. Rachel Adams. She's a microbiologist with the California Department of Public Health and a project scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Plant and Mic. Microbial biology. Dr. Adams has expertise in using sequence-based technology to study microbial exposures in indoor environments, has developed methods to improve the identification of microbes, and has interest in understanding the consequences of indoor microbial exposure on human health. She's got her BS from Georgetown University, a PhD from Stanford, and she's a member of several of the uh, associations out there, related associations. Hello, Dr. Adams, do we have you? Yes, I'm here. Great to have you. Uh, looking forward to it. It took a little while for us to connect, but we're, we're together now. Um, you know, I was looking a little at your, your background. You're at UC Berkeley now, so you're in California. You went to school at Stanford, California, Georgetown, which is outside in D.C., and New South Wales. Um, you, you've been around quite a bit. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up so interested in microbiology? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I grew up sort of with just a natural interest in in nature and biological diversity. And uh, when I went to college, I studied biology as an as an undergrad research major, and through research got exposed to hidden diversity, so diversity that we, yeah, we can't see with our eyes. So either that's genetic diversity within species or um, a lots of life that is, that is too small to see. So ever since then, I've been studying, um, studying sort of this hidden, hidden diversity in nature um, and trying to understand how that's generated and then the consequences of that hidden diversity on larger processes that we can see. You know, you, you also, you're with two groups there, UC Berkeley and the California uh, Department yeah. of Public Health. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, departments of public health have to deal a lot with moisture and mold issues. And I kind of wanted to start with how California is handling mold in homes. Can you tell listeners a little bit about how 
the California public health groups deal with you know calls or or letters about mold in their home or or maybe they're renting a home or they're working in a building that has moisture and mold issues yeah so this is um this is an interesting topic when i'm i'm getting more and more sort of fascinated with um so my background is pure research um but part of our job um uh, part of my job at the at the working with the state of california is um is doing sort of public outreach um, and public education. So while the indoor air, so I'm in the indoor air quality group in the environmental health laboratory branch. And so we ourselves do not do inspection or um, regulation. So we, we're tasked with uh, doing research related to the causes um, and ultimately the prevention of pollution in indoor environments. So our mandate is, uh, is really basic science, basic research. But part of that involves educating the public about some of these issues. So we have statements on um, relationships between dampness and health. And we have uh, advice documents on mold or moisture in my home. What do I do? Um, but we do get a lot of direct inquiries from renters that have mold in their homes and and don't know what to do so one of the things that we did was we created a, a database for the entire state so you could go uh, go to the database and enter your city in your county and find out who should be uh, helping you if you have mold in your rental home hmm. um, and there there's a there's a there's a lot of sort of complications in that. So basically the housing code um, was amended semi-recently to include mold as a factor that made a, stand, uh, a building substandard. So dampness was all, was, was, has been in there, um, but semi-recently it added mold. Uh, and so the state housing code regulates that local agencies should enforce the housing code, but it doesn't actually specify who or how that's actually executed. So it's left to this, the county and the city to, um, to figure that out. Hmm. And so everywhere in the state, uh, it, it's a different agency, um, and then, or it's a different sort of jurisdiction, whether it's in your city or your county. And then even within that, it might be different departments. So it might be code enforcement or environmental health or um, but I guess those are the main ones that we see. So there's a lot of variation in, in where people go to get help and it's not very clear. And so one thing that we're trying to do is sort of improve that information and make sure, make it easier for people to find out how to get help if they have mold in their rental home. And you mentioned that, and I, I'd like to clarify, was it California that added mold or was it yes. a federal no it was, it was in the in the california housing code um it was it added mold as one of the factors you know there's a list of 15 factors or something that make a that make a unit or make a structure um substandard so you know there's are things like um they don't have running water, or, you know, things like that. And so damp, dampness in habitable rooms was always on there. Uh, but now visible mold is, was added as a bullet point. I see. All right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, you, you know, if a landlord, let me, let me add, if a landlord doesn't want to obviously spend a bunch of money fixing the mold, is there, is there recourse? Can, can they, can code enforcement go out and then point to this California uh, code and say, hey, you know, you have to do X, Y, or Z? Yes. So uh, officially the, the local jurisdiction has full authority to cite the landlord, deem that unit uninhabitable, um, and the landlord has to fix it. Oh, okay. And so, so in, in theory, this is on the books. I mean, what we, but what we find is sort of a lot of, variation in 
and how that's actually enforced, whether it's actually enforced sort of the knowledge and experience of the code enforcers to know, to even know that they have the power to do that or the will to do that. So, I mean, so officially, yes, someone has the right to tell that landlord they, they need to fix that. Do they then reference a particular guidance document that, you know, the landlord has to follow when fixing that? And then is there some way of confirming it's been fixed? No, no. So this, I mean, so this is all up to that particular code enforcer, okay. uh, whether it was sufficiently addressed. Interesting. It's tough. It's a tough situation for many states. And I was watching some TV this morning. You're not only a state in California, you're the fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, so it's, we, hear, we hear that a lot. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the ASHRAE uh, journal article that, that really kind of, I, I've been wanting to get you on for a long time. I know uh, you're well known in the whole, you know, research arena when it comes to mold and, and, and microbial issues. But then I saw this article on measuring building moisture to thwart mold growth that was in the ASHRAE journal. I can't remember. That was in February. Um, and then I contacted you after that to see if we could talk a little bit about it. I thought it was interesting. Uh, the article and, and your co-author was Mark Mendel. We've had Dr. Mendel on the show. I, a little disappointed to see it was 2011, uh, so we need to get him back. We were talking about, at that point, a uh, great show, by the way, and we did play it, replay it once, but it was about uh, health effects associated with mold exposure, and, and he had done a, a very interesting, I guess, the, what do you call it when you look at a whole bunch of different papers and then you put, like, meta... Meta-analysis, right. Okay, he did a meta-analysis, and it was on bronchitis. A lot of it was uh, related to bronchitis and mold health effects. I'm just curious that, you know, since that was 2011, I noticed in um, the editorial you sent me that, that, that they're including development of asthma as a potential health effect associated with mold. Are, are there other things that have been updated since that 2011 article? There is. Mark is also uh, has also done another. Mark and others have also done. I think it's a 2015 study. That's also a sort of a new meta analysis where they looked at uh, different studies and whether the data uh, showed whether it was sufficient to cause these or um, as a cause for some of these other respiratory ailments or just associated. And so that 2015 study, what showed that it was, um, I believe this is right, that there was enough evidence to show that it actually exacerbated asthma um, and associated with new asthma. I would need to look, but okay. we can send, we can send, there, there is a, a new paper since um, the 2011 one. Okay. We'll definitely get that. Uh, I'm going to try hard to get after reading the editorial you wrote, I'd like to get both of you on. It's, it's fascinating. And it's very related to what we call our research to practice series. We're trying to get practitioners the most current information on, you know, what researchers are finding with respect to these indoor air quality issues. And the one I read in the Ashway Journal was about measuring building moisture. I noticed in there it said that an estimated 20 to 50% of homes have one or more signs of dampness. And I'm, I'm curious where those numbers come from and, and how they define dampness. Yeah, so those, those papers, come, or those um, numbers come from a series of studies. So um, three in particular, and these, these are all sort of a compilation of other studies. So the, um, the three papers are an Institute of Medicine uh, paper, um, that was looking at indoor, uh, indoor air quality. Um, and then there's a WHO report that also was looking at dampness and mold. And then there's a paper in, in indoor air um, by Madurian Fisk. And, and these, these papers just looked at the available papers out there and tried to get sort of summary data about that. Um, so the 20% is coming from the WHO and the Institute of Medicine estimate. Um, and then the 50% is coming from the um, Mudari and Fisk paper. And so 
we'd have to look in in those papers for the individual studies um, that they were drawing from. But part of the issue is that all of these papers sort of looked for different aspects of of indoor dampness and mold, and so it's hard to um, sort of compare it quantitatively, you kind of just have to look at it qualitatively and see what the similarities and differences are. Mm -hmm. um, but most of these studies were based on questionnaires or self-reported questionnaires to, to homeowners, asking them questions like, do you, how often have you seen mold? You know, how, uh, is there visible mold? Is there visible dampness? Is there odor? Do you have condensation on the windows? So these sort of questions, and then it's the sort of survey-based responses. I know you had a follow-up. I don't know if it was to that or to an earlier question. Please jump in. Oh, Joe, uh, my it was to a, actually a previous question uh, dealing with um, occupants who have a mold issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I recently did a mold investigation. It was a Section 8 property. And I went out there, and there was a serious uh, serious fungal contamination in the apartment. And the tenant had turned in the owner of the property to the health department and, and so on and so forth. And what I found out when I went out there is I found that the problem was this woman had actually invested in a washer dryer unit that did both. It washed the clothes. It also dried the clothes and it was not vented to the outside. Mm -hmm. so essentially she would wash her clothes, put them in the dryer when she ran the dryer, the whole house filled with moisture, uh, green stuff's growing everywhere, and she kind of thought it was the landlord's fault. And I, I just wonder if you ever run into any situations where it's not the landlord's fault, it's in fact the occupant's fault, and what happens in those situations? Yeah, so um, we, uh, I mean, we don't do inspections, so I'm I can tell you what, what gets reported to us. So all that we, we, that would sort of fall to the code enforcer to recognize uh, the ultimate source of the problem and then correct accordingly. So in that case, th they would um, be telling the tenant that they need to vent um, and not necessarily citing the landlord. Um, but I mean, in my experience, it's more often the other way where- Understood. Landlords like to think it's the tenant's problem; that it's, it's their fault, not not something structural to the building. Understood. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about. You know, we're talking about mold and moisture in homes and people's residences. Twenty to fifty percent uh, was the the figure in the in the paper that uh, an estimated twenty to fifty percent have one or more signs of dampness. Um, you also got into some pretty significant detail about measuring moisture and that's what we kind of titled this show today research to practice moisture measurement and mold and um john put up a, a slide here uh that, that says microbiologists usually express and i of course covered it up with my other uh moisture requirements of a microorganism at a minimum of water activity uh, a measure of how much free water is in a material so I'm just curious, within that paper, uh, how many of the the different papers or studies you looked at actually used water activity, and, and when did water activity become uh, the go-to measurement? Well, I, th I mean, uh, water activity, the importance of water activity really grew out of the food industry movement. Uh, this connect, This realization that wasn't the water content of the food that was going to determine whether mold could grow. It was how much of that water was actually available to microorganisms to grow. So for example, something like honey or um, jam um, actually is, you know, it seems like it's plenty moist, but the water is chemically bound and therefore not available to the microorganisms and therefore doesn't go bad very quickly. Wow. That's a fascinating example. Uh, I never thought of it that way. Okay. So that, that sort of idea applied to 
the built environment world um, is sort of the same idea that there might there might be water there a building material might have a it's going to have a moisture content, but it doesn't mean that all that water is available to microorganisms. Okay, very interesting. Um, Go ahead. And so that so that's the so ultimately that's what we want to know is can microorganisms grow? And so like what you the ideal variable for that is water activity. Um, but what you get into at the practical level is that it's not very easy to, to get at that. Um, so when it's a food, it's, it's when it's a small material like a food, they do have these countertop water activity measures where you put your food item in a cup, put it in this small tabletop device, and within seconds it gives you a water activity reading. Um, but obviously you can't do that for your, for your building material. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the the disconnect there. And so, the, the whole oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask the ones for food. Uh, you, you said they pretty quickly. I mean, how quickly can you get that? It seems like the ones I've seen for buildings, it takes forever. Right, um, and we can talk about that because that's what we found. I've actually never used it, but my impression is that this thing is within seconds or minutes. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but other people who use it will be able to answer that better. Let's let's talk a little bit about moisture meters and, and how that's different from water activity. I know, John, we we put some slides together from the uh, from, from the article. I'm not sure if what do you got up there, to... Joe. While while, while he's doing that, um, 1953 uh, was when uh, the connection was made, and one of our we're the smartest audience ever. Right. <laughs> guys get these questions in, in seconds. And the guy named W.J. Scott uh, established the correlation in 1953, so long, long time ago. And his research was based on food. Um, yes, he, he was looking for uh, bacterial growth uh, in food. All right, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about using moisture meters and, and you know, what are some of the problems – using a moisture meter for determining whether or not there's enough water activity for mold growth? Well, I mean, at the, the basic level, it's, it's me moisture meters are measuring some aspect of moisture content or moisture in the material. They're not necessarily measuring the water that's available for microbial growth at the surface. So, they are, they're going to, those things are going to be related, um, but not necessarily in a straightforward way. So, the, I mean, the reason, sort of, we can talk about this, but the, the issue is that at this point, we can only say that, that any microbial, any fungal growth in your home is associated with a health risk. So that's not, it's not dependent on the particular species um, or the specific type of fungus. It, it's just, if you can see mold, uh, there's, an in, there's an increased health risk. And we know that the more mold you see, uh, the worse the risk is. But it's, there's, there's no scien scientific studies that show that certain molds are worse than others. Um, so, for example, if you have two square foot of a particular species, you can ignore it, but you have two square foot of another fungal species, then you need to address it. Like, that's, that's not been established. Um, so, at this point, the fundamental aspect of a building that we care about is whether you're going to get any fungal growth or any sort of microbial growth. And the fact, and the one variable that determines that is going to be water activity. So, really focusing on how much water in a building that's available for growth is at this point sort of the fundamental question and the fundamental goal of inspecting homes for health. Joe, you know, I, I think one point to, to build on what she said, you can have a building that's very, very dry, but you just happen to have a, a pinhole leak. And that pinhole leak that's wetting surfaces, uh, you're going to have fungal growth on that wet surface, but you're not necessarily going to have 
significant fungal amplification anywhere else in the building except where it's wet. And that, I mean, all it takes is a little leak, and you can have problems in a dry building. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, but one of the issues for practitioners is trying to get, you know, the tools that we have. We have moisture meters. We have thermal imaging. We have, you know, uh, basic tools for measuring moisture. How well do they relate to water activity? Yeah, so that was kind of, uh, that was what we were trying to get at in this paper. Uh, so we were building on work uh, by a colleague in our group, Janet Mocker, who you guys might know from the bioaerosols handbook. So she edited sure. that. So she started this project where uh, looking at a single piece of gypsum board and various uh, indwelling and surface moisture meters, how do those correlate? with water activity and starting to look systematically at this relationship between what your moisture meter is telling you and what that water activity is and therefore how likely it is for you to get fungal or microbial growth. And so what we were doing is we were expanding on that by using different types of drywall materials. And the, the goal was never to was sort of look at to look at the the process of how one would then translate your moisture meter reading to a water activity meeting and is that sort of a practical approach because it would depend on your your meter reading i mean the actual meter that you're using the board type that you're measuring it on um and some history about whether it's wetting or dry and so you can imagine this sort of a a table being generated that says, if you're using this moisture meter reading on this type of surface, um, and, you, and, and your meter reading is telling you 0.2, for example, then that correlates, you could look up into the table and it would tell you that correlates to a water activity of 0.75. I mean, that, that's an example. That was the, we were, the, sort of the concept that we were trying to get at. That's what you were hoping for, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to actually develop all those tables, but to sort of see the feasibility and the accurate and that's sort of what that process would be like. And how did it come out? Um, well, there. Uh, it turns out it would be it would be a pretty difficult endeavor, I think. Um, so what you're you're showing is. Uh, our, our data in the context of forgiven critical values of water activity. So we haven't talked about this, but there's, there's debate um, about what water activity level should you maximally allow in a home? Um, or what sort of the threshold at which you can say, this is safe, nothing is gonna grow. And so people generally use something like between 0.75 and 0.85 is sort of the goal um, for what you're trying to get below to prevent microbial prol proliferation. Hmm. So what this study was, or what this particular graph is showing is for these critical values of, of AW, what, uh, what were the moisture meter readings um, uh, at these different levels. And we were specifically asking things like, um, do they sufficiently separate? So for example, could the same moisture meter reading be applied to an, a water activity of 0.8 and 0.85? That's not discriminating between these two critical values and therefore it may not be informative in that way. Um, so we were trying to compare sort of the, the how practical it would be to to actually glean AW information from these water activities, um, from, from these moisture meter readings for these critical AW values. So you you took the same material, um, I'm just four yeah, four different materials. Okay, and then you looked at both the water activity as measured by... So we, we created the water activity levels. 
Okay. Um, we had we we had a a glove box. So the glove box is basically just you know a sealed chamber that is um, uh, creates different conditions than what's outside it. And then there's gloves that go inside the chamber, so you can sort of manipulate what's going on inside. Okay. So you know, people worked with Ebola. Ebola. Imagine that, right? But we're like asbestos abatement workers. They put their hands in a glove bag. Okay. Um, but in this case, we're we're not worried about stuff getting out. We're worried about the room RH getting in. So okay. we sort of create this field space, create um, a particular water activity by changing the relative humidity of this sealed chamber and letting it equilibrate for a week to get to that particular water activity. Wow. Let the material um, in the box equilibrate for a week. Yes. Okay. So it so it's at the it's equilibrating for a week at this various uh, ERHs at um at this at this uh, at the various relative humidities and then we sort of show that after a week it's equilibrated to that so the material is the same relative humidity as the air um, so we know the water activity of these different board types and then we up applied various moisture meters to it and, and recorded what those readings were. Hmm. And that's what uh, these, these data are sh showing, part of what these data are showing. Um, so, for example, um, uh, the one at the top left, the pin P, um, so we looked at pin and pinless moisture meter readings. Um, but so, for example, this one, um, at the low water activity level of 0.75, for the different board types, we were getting readings between, you know, 14 and 16. And then as you went up to, right, a moisture uh, water activity level of 18 or 19, we were getting uh, reader readings of, you know, 18 and above, something like that. Hmm. Uh I'm wondering, one of the things you said kind of struck me. So you you would set up the relative humidity in the chamber. We'll call it a chamber for lack mm -hmm. of a better term here. And then you put the material in there for a week. What was that based on? I mean, is it because there was other research that showed after a week that that material would come into equilibrium relative humidity or, or would be at the, the water activity of the air? Yeah, I mean, so that was a. Um, there, we don't know of any data that have specifically showed that. We we just sort of did a practical consideration of long enough to equilibrate, but we did uh, we did check, we did confirm that after a week, um, we had some board types that were not being manipulated by us that were sitting in the corner and that had um, permanent sort of indwelling meters. And so we could look at the moisture content um, and, the, and the AW of those meters and sort of confirm that they weren't changing, that they had sort of reached the ambient air relative humidity. I think that's interesting because, you know, we, we oftentimes are in the field, we're kind of stuck with, uh, you know, last year, for instance, there was a high relative humidity, at least in my part of the country, for a long period of time. And I, it's always been something I wonder about, you know, how long does it take before the materials that are exposed to a high relative humidity get into equilibrium with that, or, you know, with that air relative humidity? And it looks like a week from what you've done is at least um, – a good starting point, we could say that if it's been exposed to 80% relative humidity for a week, we can pretty much assume that um, that material will be at a water activity that would be about, what, 0.8? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, uh, it's, I mean, it's a good starting point, um, but we would definitely want to do m more experiments if that was the particular question. Um, I mean, just because I think a lot of the times we don't know what if the the material is lagging or the meter that we're using to measure the water is lagging. 
Um, so those could both be happening, right? That the actual board is uh, lagging in how much it's equilibrium, but then just how quickly whatever meter we're using to measure it is also lagging. Um, and I mean, we did an experiment with the water activity meter and showed, we, could, we should talk about that, um, showed that there's a, in this particular case, there's a lag in how quickly the meter can pick up the actual moisture con or water activity of the, of the board. Maybe you could expand on that a little now. I mean, just. Yeah. So, I mean, so one thing that we did was we, we had a, a board that was at 85 water activity, um, 0.85 water activity. It had, um, and then it had been sitting there, um, uh, I think at least a week. And then we applied a, a water activity meter. So a specific meter that measures the water activity of a surface um, that works by creating a sealed headspace above the sensor and then uh, measures the RH of that air in the headspace above the material. And um, when we did that, it didn't, it the water activity meter started at a, a 55 water activity level and it didn't get up to the board water activity level, which was 0.85 for over a day. So there was uh, a sort of extreme lag in how quickly that the air in the headspace actually equilibrated with the board. It took a day. We, we had the peep one from Decagon years ago and I, I think it may be the same meter and and cliff and i thought it was a fascinating show because it was like you know maybe we're getting closer to having something mm -hmm. that shows us water activity in a reasonable time frame and and i've done it for 20 minutes and, and find a fairly decent um yeah so you see a, i mean it, it instantly jumps so you do you do see it start to rise the second you put it on this high water activity meter but it doesn't get to the ultimate value that it should be at for in our hands for 24 hours or wow. over 24. fascinating hey we've we've got to stop and thank our sponsors uh when we come back for the second half i want to mention um hysteresis i think is the mm -hmm. term talk a little bit about that and then uh go a little more into the the practical aspects of uh, what you can recommend for listeners with respect to moisture meters. Is that what we're stuck with for now? And then I'd also like to talk uh, a little bit about your editorial that's coming up in uh, indoor air. So we'll be back in 90 seconds with Dr. Rachel Adams. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great price same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, we're back. Second half of our interview, Dr. Rachel Adams. John and I talked during the break. We're going to quickly put up a couple slides we put together to kind of summarize the article real, real good and pull it together. And then when we get to that hysteresis part, I want you to chime in on that. Go ahead, John. So the, the first thing was uh, 
first of all, water activity, um, usually express moisture requirements of water activity at which could grow. Uh, AW is a measure of how much free water. We did that. Go to the next one, John. Now, for example, Wallamia CB, I hope I got that right, will grow at a relatively dry condition of 0.7, while Stacky will grow at a very wet 0.95 uh, and below 0.65 to 0.70. Few fungi can grow at all. I, I want to stop there, Dr. Adams, for just a moment. Um, so below that 65% relative humidity uh, or equilibrium relative humidity, which is approximately a 0.65 water activity, very few, if any, fungi will grow there. That's your area of expertise. Uh, uh, sure. I mean, <laughs> I, um, I mean, I don't, that's not, I don't do studies where I'm looking at what's the minimum water activity at what, at which, fungi will grow, but the general sort of scientific understanding is that below that water activity level, fun, fungi and microorganisms may persist, so it doesn't necessarily kill them to, to be in an environment that's below that water activity, but they're not thriving, proliferating, growing. Um, that, so that's the distinction. Now, what would the other? I'm just curious. I know I'm, I'm throwing this out without any preparation, but what at what level would the volatile organic compounds that that are the byproduct of that growth? Is there a, a water activity level they have to be at before they start to produce those? That's a good question, and that is a project that I am actually working on now. Um, so I have a, a project with colleagues that's, uh, that's just been funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation in their Chemistry of Indoor Environments program, oh. where we're specifically looking at the microbial volatile organic compounds uh, that in indoor building materials um, at various moisture content levels. So I sh we should be able to answer that in a couple of years. A couple of years. I'd love to get you back for that because I – Personally, I think that's an area that we don't look enough at, that, that the VOCs, they're highly irritating for people. And I just, you know, I think of the old Leonard Skinner song, ooh, that smell, you know, uh, it's, it's the smell of death, that, that those VOCs coming off. I, I find that in homes that have that odor, people have more health issues. And that, that's just, you know, obviously there's no science behind that, but it's just my practitioner perspective. Let's go to the next one, John. Okay, one more. So different materials can have very different moisture contents. Um, for example, at a water activity of 0.7, Douglas fir has a moisture content of about 9%, while gypsum board has a moisture content of 1%. The same meter gives different moisture readings depending on whether the material is wetting or drying, sorbing or desorbing. This is a well-known phenomenon referred to as hysteresis. I wonder if you could comment on that for listeners just a little bit more. Sure. It's just this idea that the materials lag in how quickly they uh, release moisture than, than the amount that they take it up. So if you put a material into a particular high relative humidity, it's going to take up that moisture at a higher rate than if you then move that material to a drier RH, then, then it will lose that moisture to the air. And so th what that means practically in this context is that for a given AW, the, uh, so for, we know that the moisture, available moisture is the same. You get a different moisture content based on your moisture meter readings, whether it's in the process of absorbing water or desorbing that water. Yeah, I think that's a what good it a Yeah, it just right. basically creates noise and sort of a range around your moisture meter reading for a given AW. Okay. And then you noted that instrument scales are not standardized across meters, so different meter models can give quite different readings. How how big of a, a, I don't know, difference did you find there? Was it pretty significant or? Yeah, I mean, so we weren't specifically trying to 
sort of validate certain meters over others. So we weren't um, thinking about it that way. Um, but we, first of all, they, you know, different meters report different, tend to report different things, you know, moisture content, um, wood moisture equivalent, or just a completely sort of scale that doesn't mean anything that you just use relative to that meter in another board type. So, um, uh, so that's what we mean is that there's these scales, they might all give you some number for, you know, for example, 14, but that just means a different thing to a different meter. And I, I think that's what's made it hard for EPA or others to, to establish a scale. And they did it in one document, Cliff, you may remember this in the, uh, Hurricane Sandy fact sheet uh, that was on the uh, foaming. At the end of that fact sheet, they had a scale that said, you know, like below 9% was green, 9 to 15 was yellow, above 15 was red. I suspect it's hard to develop a, a one scale for that for every different type of moisture meter. Would you agree, Dr. Adams? Right. Yes. I mean, totally. So I assume that was a wood moisture equivalent scale. They were that particular. Yes. So okay. they were looking at after you take the drywall off and you dry the wood, the Douglas fir typically, you know, mm -hmm. what level did it have to be before you could start putting your drywall back up? Right. And so, so I think we could get to the point where we could say in absolute terms, these are sort of the ranges you would want to be in um, if we then if we had done sort of these tables we were talking about about how that material type moisture content translates to water activity levels but sort of that that level of of detailed research has not been done to my knowledge. are you still thinking of doing that or is there is there a proposal to do that um, no this? not uh, not that I know of. We're not planning on doing it, and I don't know of other people that are. I just think it's something that would help practitioners if we if we had more of a standardized way of looking at moisture in, even if it was just in wood, let alone, you know, and then we start to talk about the moisture in concrete, the moisture in drywall, the moisture in, you know, any number of other materials. It, it, it's really tough for practitioners. But anyway, for these reasons, my last bullet point here, moisture meter readings cannot be related directly to the growth potential for microorganisms. I, I pulled that out of the article, and I wanted you to comment on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a firm statement saying that, um, that, moisture meter, that a moisture meter reading uh, is not necessarily going to be able to be able to draw a firm line in the sand about whether that material is going to grow is going to, is capable of growing microorganisms mm -hmm. that you need that you need a lot of sort of other information um, than that pure moisture meter reading to, to say that fair enough uh, John do we have another slide okay um, we tr you say in the article, we tried to bridge this gap by asking the question, could current tools be applied to estimate the water activity? So that's kind of what we were talking about in the first half of the show. Um, one experiment involved timing the response of a sensor available for research but not widely used that directly estimated the AW. Again, we talked about that. And the second approach involved using different commercially available moisture meters on several configurations of gypsum board panels at different water activity levels. I wonder if you could comment on that last bullet point. So that's the graph where we were, we sort of showed um, at different water activity levels, what do, what were the different moisture meter readings? How well did they separate out the different water activity measures? Um, and how how did they correlate with water? What was the nature of that relationship? And that's where we saw sort of a nonlinear response, and we saw hysteresis. Exactly. I think that hysteresis is, is important for the listeners out there. Now, John, do we have any more slides from that particular section? Okay. So I, I, I'm just rushing a little bit because I know we're running a little low on time, and there were a couple other things I wanted to get to. Um, so 
what tips can you give practitioners on estimating or measuring water activity in building materials? Uh, well, yeah, this is a little bit of a tough one. I mean, I can, I can say the obstacles um, and I can say that we need, there's a lot of room for innovation in this area to develop a practical way to measure AW. Um, but I would say based on what we have now, um, that it's not practical to measure AW in the field. And so therefore the next best thing are moisture meters. Um, and therefore just sort of recognizing that this connection between moisture meter readings and, a and AW is not, uh, it's not very straightforward. And I, th I think that's, very important for practitioners. You know, we we can't can't do water activity at least in a way that is uh, economical and uh, practical for practitioners. But we can use moisture meters. But we we need to recognize and probably uh, somehow in our reports uh, note the problems with moisture meter uh, readings and trying to convert those into water activity and the ability for mold to grow. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Joe, yeah, Joe, if I might, you know, to, to me, there seems to be a disconnect between using a moisture meter that measures moisture content and then trying to get a reading of what's going on at the surface of the material because those pins are at different depths in the material and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, one thing that I can tell you that practitioners can do, and again, I'm not sure exactly how accurate it is or it isn't, but one thing practitioners can do is use a different type of meter. They can use a digital hygrometer. They can take the meter. They can place on the surface that they want to measure uh, water activity in. They can cover it with plastic. They can put tape on it. And those meters quickly react. It doesn't take them hours to react. They're, they're going to react within seconds. And they're going to give you a reading of what's happening in that micro uh, environment. And what's been done in the industry is to take that reading, that humidity reading, and, and uh, move two decimal places over to the left. So essentially, if you got a reading of 80 and you move the decimal point two places over, that gives you a reading of, of 0.8. And again, I'm not sure where it came from. I can tell you that uh, it's used in the restoration industry. It's been used there for years. It's in some restoration literature. I have not seen it in scientific literature. However, I figure a scientist somewhere figured this out and told us because uh, I, I think we weren't aware of water activity before, weren't aware of how to measure it. So I think somewhere it's, it's based on science. And that's the one thing that I might suggest to you in terms of future research is not use a, uh, try to get the, I think there's more of a correlation between relative humidity and measuring what's going on in the air uh, and water activity than there is between uh, the moisture content of the material and water activity. Okay, so the relationship between how how quickly sort of these materials actually respond to the RH in the air and sort of how that then translates to risk for microbial growth? I, I think in terms of risk, but also what's going on or what's or what's not going on. And, and I think so what, what happens is... Are you going up or down? Well, the, you know, the, the point is we can have a dry building and we can go in the building and use all sorts of moisture meters and not find anything. But if we had an area where there was the slow drip uh, and you, may, you can measure the water activity of just that area, you know, with the meter and number one, prove that it would be prone to microbial growth or number two, if you had microbial growth, you can have an answer for why you have it because the water activity is high 
in that in that particular area but mm -hmm. it's it, again the, these meters are very i mean you can buy them inexpensively for probably and they probably start at maybe 20 or 30 dollars and you know then go up into the thousands but uh they're, they're pretty accurate so yeah, it's just a temperature relative humidity meter right uh, you know and they're, they're yes, it sounds like it's the same concept of what is currently in use it's just the head space is a lot smaller so it's going to equilibrate much quicker so well, I'm not sure. how big would the head space be uh in, in, in the the meter that you were using in your studies i mean how, how many cubic feet or oh, oh no i mean it was um i'm trying to remember it was something like uh on the order of two to four cubic centimeters Right, so this is this is also this is going to be larger than that, but it's going to be relatively small. This is going to be, uh, you know, you, you go to the area that you want to test, and I suspect it has to be somewhat bigger than the meter, <laughs> or the meter is going to be hanging out on both on both edges, and we just cover it with plastic and and, and tape it on. So we create uh, a small enclosed head space or enclosed space, and. You know the meters react very very quickly, so you can get a good idea. And you know, typically, I know, you know, when I've trained people and, and shown them this particular technique, where we would take out, you know, a piece of drywall, and by the time you passed it around a room, it might take four or five minutes or something like that before that everyone had an opportunity to see it. But the thing will, you know, it, it'll reach equilibrium, and it's going to give you a meter. It's going to it's going to get to where it doesn't change. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that was what we found is, that, you know, what the meter we were using, it, when you put it on the surface, it instantly jumped. So it right. instantly, but it didn't get to what it was ultimately going to get to into, for 24 hours. Right, right. Uh, this may be, is this, this looks similar to the meter you yes. were using here? Yes, that's it. And it. It attaches to this Decagon, uh, this, I don't know what they're called nowadays, but, uh, you know, yeah, this. It, it attaches to a sensor and then that's how it's. The data is recorded, right? So this I would put on a surface. We'll use my hand as an example, and it encloses a headspace here. Yes. Are, are you aware of any improvements they're trying to make to this? So that, uh, the one I have, in my experience, it takes about 20 minutes before you get something fairly stable. Um, oh. And you said it could be up to an hour, a day, right? Or, right. Um, yeah, I don't know of uh, – of, if that group is working on it. I mean, I know some academics have talked about trying to do what I'm saying to sort of reduce that headspace. So it would go faster. Um, just something like, you know, a temperature and RH meter directly taped onto a surface or something, um, something like that. We're running low on time. I want to jump to um, the microbiome for just a moment. We've heard a lot about the microbiome and how complicated it is. I mean, we're measuring, you know, thousands of microorganisms in dust. And, um, you know, it's, it, it can be difficult to figure out what to do with that data. Um, what is new in this area of study and what is important for practitioners to understand about the microbiome? And I think you sent us a slide that we want to put up here. Uh, well, I mean, in general, just the microbiome is the just the collection of microorganisms in a given habitat. Um, and I mean, I think what's new. Um, oh, so this is, so this, is this graph is a, is a slightly different point, but I mean, I think what, what the, there's a, there's a great promise in being able to identify all the microorganisms in a, in a given space or even in a given sample. And so we're trying to, we as sort of scientists are trying to figure out where, what is the, the signal in this, in this broad community of microorganisms? What, which, what are the particular organisms we care about and what are the important players? Um, so we're basically trying to find the signal in the, in the noise at this point. Um, uh, and so right now there's a great promise um, in terms of using microbiome-based assays to diagnose health problems um, or, or building conditions, but, but it's still in development. And, and 
if we can jump to this graphic we have up, I'll leave that up here, John. Um, this kind of compares, I think, different types of measurements or observations, and I think it relates them to health effects, if I'm not uh, yes. If so, I understand, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about this. Sure. So this was a graph um, put together by my colleague, Mark Mendel, where he was comparing studies that looked at the health risks, so measured um, health risks, odd ratio, risk ratio, of certain aspects of dampness and mold um, across different aspects of how we would measure microbes in buildings. And so the left side are quantified microbiological measurements. So you take a sample and you do some assay in the lab and it gives you some idea of a specific quantity of particular organisms or types of organisms uh, in that sample and then looks at the, the associations between those particularly measured microbiological agents and the, and the health outcome. On the right side, uh, these are non-quantified uh, um, microbiological measure measurements. But I mean, so the moisture measured moisture is quantified. It's using the moisture meter readings, um, and then observed dampness and mold are sort of a building inspection level of category. So things like how much water damage there was. Was there visible mold? Was there mold odor? Um, and looking at those, uh, those aspects of measuring buildings with health outcomes. And curiously, these sort of non-quantified microbiological measurements are much more strongly associated with the health outcome um, than anything that we can at this point quantify, measure, and assay. Very so, yeah, so it's this idea that you know going into a into a building and doing a really thorough survey um, is going to be able to more strongly predict a health outcome than any sample you could take in that home. And whether that's a culture sample, a PCR sample, or a next gen sequencing is the NGS, I believe. Yeah, um, and it it goes to show that even though we have we have issues with using moisture meters. They still do pretty darn good when it comes to this scale, uh, and, and we need to continue to use them as a part of our observations. Yes, I think there's support for that. Okay, very good. And then we had one more uh, topic I wanted to get before we go. I know we're running a little over. Can you stay another minute? Sure. All right, so you put together a uh, – uh, editorial, I think it's, it is for, for indoor air that, that's coming up here. You sent me a preview. Uh, you and Mark Mendel put together uh, an editorial called The Challenge for Microbial Measurements in Buildings. And um, that's been a topic of great interest here on IAQ Radio. What is the takeaway for practitioners from that article? I think uh, this slide we have coming up helps with that. Yeah, so that, the, the figure that we just talked about, that was in that editorial. And, um, and it, it's sort of highlighting the, the, the obstacle that quantified microbiolo microbiological measurements have, because um, right now they're lagging behind um, the building inspection and associations with health. Okay. And, and I noticed the sport traps aren't on there. I'm curious if you could comment on that. Yeah, you know, um, or slit impact should, or whatever should, you want to call it. We should them. talk about because I there are there are very few academic studies that have systematically used spore traps to uh, to diagnose building as being water damaged. We we are we are having a hard time finding peer-reviewed academic papers uh, using that technique. Interesting. And before we go, um, any other comments on that editorial the, the, that you put together for indoor air? And, and when will that be in uh, indoor air? Uh, that's coming out online in June. Okay, great. 
Great. All right. Well, I know we're running a little over here, but I wanted to give you the last shot. And Cliff, any uh, final thoughts or comments? I'm good, Joe. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Adams, before we go, is there any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, tell listeners? Any Anything we missed or anything you'd like to add? Um, no, I mean, I can just say that I would like to um, hone into code enforcers that when they see mold, think moisture, um, and uh, to fix the underlying moisture problem. And I want to make sure that we uh, put the offer out now that we get you back and uh, maybe we could get Mark Mendel and talk a little bit about that upcoming editorial and um, a little bit more about the comparison between different types of uh, instruments that people are using in the field, more on research to practice. I, I really enjoy these research to practice shows. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Rachel Adams, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Uh, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our loyal listeners will be back um, next Friday. We're working on a restoration show. I don't quite have it finalized yet, but we'll be back next Friday noon uh, live with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.